Welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is episode number 36, recorded January 8, 2013. Put your foot down. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith and Unconditional Love Fellowship, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org or check out the new ministry website at unconditionallovefellowship.com. This audio podcast is sponsored by Liquid Networks and Web Vision Graphics, providing quality, affordable websites and website hosting to your small business, church, ministry, or nonprofit organization. We understand how the web works, so you don't have to. Get your free quote today by visiting www.webvisiongraphics.com. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. It is good to be back after breaking over Christmas and New Year. But now I want to pick up where we left off with this fascinating fellow, a man of faith, a man of trust, uh, called Caleb. And I trust that you are up to date with us from the last hours. Uh, Caleb was one of the scouts that Moses sent into the land of Canaan in order to, well, the word was spy it out. They, they needed a strategy. How are we going to go in and take the land that God has given us? How are we going to take our inheritance? And so it, it was with that boldness and expectancy that the 12 scouts were sent into the land of Canaan. They came back in sheer terror, at least 10 of them did. And they spoke of the enormity of the persons who lived there. They were Hebrews who were little people, essentially. And um, what they saw there was unusually big people called the Sons of Anak. And they had their headquarters in a place in the southern portion, a place called Hebron. And they they had gone, the, the 12 of them had gone all over the land, but they come back and say, yes, the land was all that God said it was. But if we go in there, we'll be destroyed. And their reports set all the people into panic, terror, anxiety, and uh, ended up with a, a threatening takeover to return to the land of Egypt and surrender back to the Pharaoh. What a mess. The one lone voice that stood against not only the other scouts, but also against all of Israel, the one lone voice that stood alongside of Moses and Aaron was Caleb. And he spoke with quiet authority that the Lord was with them and he had given them this land, so it is ours to go in and take it. And that that's the fellow we're looking at. The man who stood as the one voice that was the voice of faith and trust in God and his promises. Well, Moses said something to Caleb. It's not reported in the account there in Numbers. You remember we've been there in Numbers 13, 14, but it's not reported there. But 
45 years later, when Caleb is the only one remaining along with Joshua, think about that, all the others had perished in the wilderness in the last 40 years. And now there's only Caleb and Joshua left. And they have taken the rising, the new generation. They've taken them into the land of Canaan. And it's been now time as each family has been settled in various parts of Canaan. And Caleb goes to Joshua. And it's in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 14. And it says, the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, said to him. So Caleb comes to Joshua, who took Moses' place, and he comes with representatives of his tribe, his family, and he says in verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Keresh Barnea to spy, to scout out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. He said, I came back and I told what I saw. And I, I did it from my heart, which included all of the promises of God and all of the presence of God. Verse 8, he said, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. He said, the other ten, they, they, they were stronger than my voice, and the whole of the people melted in terror 40 years ago. But even so, said Caleb, I followed the Lord my God fully, even though three million people said, let's go back to Egypt, I was steadfast, and I followed the Lord fully. So, he said, Moses swore on that day, saying to me, to Caleb, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever because you have followed the Lord your God fully. And then Caleb goes on to say, Now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I'm 85 years old today. This was his birthday. And he said, I'm still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now. The war for going out and coming in. So then now give me this hill country, Hebron, about which the Lord spoke on that day. The land of the Anakim, the great 45 cities. The Lord will be with me. I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Quite a story. 85 years old today, said Caleb. And 45 years of those 85, I've been waiting for this minute. Because Moses said that wherever my foot had trodden... 
I could have that land. And he said, I've come to you, Joshua, the one who took over from Moses, and I'm asking for the land that has been given to me, which was the land of Anak, the giants, the land that so terrified the people. Caleb said, it's mine, and I've come to claim it. Now, the expression that Moses used there to Caleb, that he quotes here, the land on which your foot has trodden, your foot has trodden. If we had time to meander a little more slowly through these stories, I I could take you to a number of places where this phrase is used. It, It was used, and if you're taking notes, it's in Deuteronomy 11, 24 and 25, Deuteronomy 33 and 29, and on into Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, and we could even go beyond that. Um, It's a phrase that crops up, especially in these uh, early books of the Bible, the, the place where your foot shall tread. And it's a very important phrase, because even though it may not be mentioned later on in Scripture, the idea that is behind this phrase is front and center to all who walk in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean? Well, this, your foot shall tread. It means, just let me throw out some of the ways in which it could be put into English. It means to crush underfoot. Uh, I tell you uh, where it's used in a very simple way, but um, it was, uh, you've even seen pictures of this, I'm sure, where they put grapes into a large, very large container, and people would get into the container and begin to stomp on the grapes, and, and the grapes would be crushed into wine. Well, that's this word. Uh, it, it means to crush underfoot, only usually it is used in a much more uh, potent way than crushing grapes, but that's the idea. And so it means to tread down or subdue. And so when uh, enemies rose up against and Israel was to overcome those enemies who stood to take away the promises God had made, it says that the, the, their foot trod it means then they subdued their enemies under them when they would march forth in order to subdue enemies and take what belonged to them. March forth. This, this is the phrase, your foot shall tread. Their, as they marched forth, their, their feet were going with purpose. And it, it was not just a, a stroll in the country. They were going in order to take what was theirs by divine gift and to uh, subdue enemies that would seek to stop them taking that. And so the word, the, the treading of your foot, it meant to possess, to take your possession. It's yours. 
maybe um, we, we could throw in there another twist on the phrase that it would be to set foot. I'm, try, I'm trying to get over the idea here that, that it's not just aimlessly putting your foot down. It's not merely flopping your feet in order to walk forward. It is rather a deliberate and intentional setting of the foot and saying, where my foot lands, this is my land. And then you're next foot and you're advancing and you're taking, you're possessing. This is the inheritance that God has given so it is moving with intention, moving with deliberation. Um, it, it's got in it authority. Or could I put it this way? It's not merely about your feet, although obviously your feet are the focus. It's your feet that are putting your foot down and saying, where my foot is where I put, where I set my foot, that is mine. I'm taking what God has given, but that deliberate setting of the foot begins inside the person's heart. So the setting of the foot is but the outer, very important, but outer expression of the inner sense of authority that this land, this inheritance is given to me and I now take it. My foot marks my territory and I have the authority, that inner knowing, that inner being to work that out. Um, when, When you know you have authority, it shows in the way you walk. When you have authority, shows in the way you talk. And that goes back to the way you think. Uh, think in terms of the person who gave you the authority. And now think of yourself as the one possessing the authority. And in this case, the authority to take that which God has given you uh, means your emotions are involved. You're excited. You're not saying something by rote. You're not merely reading off a paper. This, this is holy excitement. And all of that, your, your mind and your emotions, your inner being of authority is all focused into your feet. And so you walk with that authority. And the Bible word is, the foot shall tread. That, that's it, you see. And as far back as Abraham, when this all began, when the Lord took Abraham into this land of Canaan, and he told, you remember, he said to to Abraham, go outside, look at the stars, and so shall your seed be. So he involves sight. Think about that. It's very important. It involves sight. And he said, look, and as you see the stars, so remember my promise that so in that they shall be like that. And, and then he took him outside again. He says, look to the north and the east, the west, the south. 
And wherever you walk, walk up and down on the land. Walk, you say, put your feet down is yours. I am giving it to you. Now, this whole idea, and this is just, um, um, this is a parenthesis, but I want you to understand this. Again, we could spend a lot of time here. But the very first thing that God gave to mankind was a home. Uh, we call it the Garden of Eden. And in that place, because the Garden of Eden was not the whole planet, it was hedged, there were gates, it was sort of a gated park. And, and within that area, Adam was to tend it, keep it, watch over it. But But the whole point of Eden was not simply a garden to live in. The whole point of the Garden of Eden was it was the place where God and mankind lived in perfect harmony. That, that was Eden. Please understand me. It was not simply a place where they lived. Eden was the place where they lived in union with the, the triune God. And that's why when they believed the lie, and the lie caused estrangement, the lie caused and causes division and breaking. And so the first thing Adam has broken with, with his God, and that is followed by breaking with his wife, and he breaks with creation. And so everything that was perfect harmony has now become broken and chaotic, and that's sin. And so mankind was outside of the garden. He, he divorced himself from a life of union with, with the God, his creator. And then comes this land of Canaan. Uh, again, it's the same idea that now a family, Abraham, and all his children's children's children, which we call Israel, they are going to live in a place, a land that has boundaries. And in that land, the greatest dream that was ever given to a people shall be worked out. Where God says, I will be your God. I belong to you. I give myself to you. And you shall be my people. Union, a people living inside God's covenant love and God by his spirit living inside of them. And the prophet Isaiah spoke uh, of the day that he called Emmanuel, when the Lord who was with us should in an ultimate sense be with us in that land. And so the land, please do not think of the land merely as a piece of real estate on the Mediterranean. The land was a pointer. It was 
the Garden of Eden pointed forward to something that Adam had never yet imagined, and, and that was lost, and now the purpose is, is set now in a land, a land that pointed forward to the day of Emmanuel, God with us, when humankind, not merely one family, but said God to Abraham, through you, that family, all families of the earth, the entire earth would become the place where God and man would live together in covenant union, and mankind would demonstrate the love purposes of God upon the earth. So don't get stuck on the Garden of Eden. It had its place, but it pointed to something else, something too glorious for words in those days. And don't get stuck on the land of Canaan. It too was pointing forward, pointing forward to a day when God would dwell with man and mankind would dwell with and in God. And that happened in Jesus, and he is the one that achieved everything Eden and everything Canaan was pointing to. Hold that in mind as you look at this story. Because they were to go into the land of Canaan, and wherever their foot should tread, that is, we take what God has given us, we take this piece of geography in which the great dream of God given to man shall take place, that there shall be a people who walk in God and God in them, and they live to glorify his name, not only with lip, but in all behavior and in everything that they do. That's They were going into the land to do this. And they were not going alone. Caleb knew that very well. In, in that phrase that fills the scripture, the Lord is with us. Caleb said that. The Lord is with us. That, that's why we can go and take the land. And, and that fits. the Actually, if I take the word tread out of this phrase, the foot treading, take the word tread out, and that word alone means a well-trodden path or a well-trodden way. Yeah. Your foot shall tread. You, you will subdue all who stand in your way uh, of receiving God's promise. You shall put down your foot to take what is yours but the path that you take you're not the first ones on the path it's a well-trodden path you are putting your feet into the footprints of that which has gone ahead of you and what has gone ahead of them the lord himself he treads out the path and the people of faith follow. He goes ahead, and through their coming out of Egypt and coming to Sinai, and from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, it literally was that. In a pillar of cloud, 
by day that was flaming fire at night that, that went before them. The Lord himself made the path through an otherwise trackless desert. Oh yeah, they were to walk not only with the authority that they're taking that which God has given, but as they walk, they know the Lord himself has gone before them. Now, Moses said to Caleb, when Caleb came back and spoke as he did, that it was obvious, Caleb, Moses speaking, he said that the land on which your foot has trodden, he said, you went in to that land with a very different attitude to the other scouts. You went in to put your foot down, to tread your inheritance, and to do so following the very presence of God who gave it to you. That's what set Caleb apart. It can set you apart. The, see, the promises of God... Now, these people didn't have that many. We have promises of God, a whole Bible full of them, and all of them summed up in Jesus. These, these people didn't have that many. But whether we're talking about the promises they had or the multitude of promises that we have, let me, I've said this before, but hear me. The promises of God, the word of God as you read these promises, they contain, they are potential with the power that makes them happen. Do you understand that? When, when you and I make a promise we do so as limited human beings. Sincere, but limited human beings. And what we say is not always equal to our power to do it. And so many of our words, however sincerely and lovingly spoken, actually end up falling short of what we intended when we said them. But when God speaks, there is no word that ever comes out of the mouth of God that is without the power to fulfill and the intention to bring it to pass in your life. Did you hear me? No word from God is empty of power to do and intention to fulfill. So when we read the promises of God, when we read this, the, this uh, that's why we call this the living word of God, because it's unlike any other book in that within these pages are not merely words, but there is the living 
Lord Jesus Christ and the power, strength, presence of the Holy Spirit to do all that he says. For what he says, he does. And so it's not to be just thought about and discussed and analyzed. There is a place for that. I spend a lot of time, I suppose I would use the word analyzing, uh, I, I take a lot of time delving into the words, sometimes even the periods and the commas of God's word, but never, oh Spirit of God, never let that be what I'm all about. The Bible isn't uh, the Bible, the promises of God, the Word of God is not merely to be thought about. It's not merely to be debated and discussed. It's not just the topic for a jolly good home Bible study. And when, when you read the Scripture, it's not just to read a page because that's what your Bible reading plan demands. Uh, no, you read a page just because it's, you know, the 8th of January. No, no, you don't read a page and then forget it. Um, do you remember, and we've talked about this before, in James, uh, he, he speaks early in that little epistle, he speaks of looking into a mirror and seeing what manner of person you are and then promptly forgetting what you saw. And he likens it to looking into this reservoir of all the promises of God and seeing it and saying, wow, and then walking away and promptly forgetting everything. No, you see, that, that's what Israel had done. Or as Hebrews 4 that we've referred to before. Israel at this time in Kadesh Barnea, they knew the word of God as much as Caleb did, but it said it, that it was not mixed with faith. It was simply words. Debate it, discuss it, take it, leave it. It's only words. They didn't mix it with faith, which laid hold upon it and said, this is God's word to us, and if he said it, then he intends to fulfill it in us and through us, and he is in the word, the power to do it. And so, whatever promise we read here, we, we do not rush on by or just stick it on the refrigerator. Rather, <clears throat> we, we bring that into our life. We record it into our history to experience it or to put the sole of our feet upon it. That is, to feel it to carry on with the Hebrew uh, illustrative phrase, we're going to feel it underfoot. Do you, do you see what we, when they put their foot down, they, this land that I'm now feeling is what God said he gives to me. I feel it underfoot. And that sends a message up through my legs to my heart and says, this is the land that you're an owner of. And you are here to inspect your property. 
even though at this moment the only title deed you have to this land is the one given to you by God and invisible to everybody else. But this is mine, you see. It's it's not to be discussed. We don't go back to camp and have a high-level meeting to say, did God mean what he said? Was God crazy? Is this the the worst case of insanity to go no 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 god said it we felt it under our foot we smelled it with our nose now let's go take it that was caleb's attitude you see the word to wait on god is akin it's it's same as hope and it's linked into trust And the idea of hope in the scripture is that which God has said. And it's in my future, but I am now receiving it and giving thanks to God as I feel it under my feet and in my hand. Or you could say that a hope hears a music that has not yet been created. But hope hears the music coming from the future. And faith then dances that music in the present. That's what Caleb was doing. See, the ten scouts, the other chaps, they, they went into the same land that Caleb did. But would you understand me? Caleb went in as an owner of that land to come to survey his inheritance. The other ten, they went in as tourists. Now when you're, do you see the difference? You go in to an area either as owner or as visitor, or tourist. And these scouts would appear to be going in more as tourists. I mean, to them, follow me on this, to these ten, the word of God, which was the reason they were going into the land to look at it, that word of God was more like a travel brochure. A travel guide, a sort of menu where tourists will go. Uh, I mean, that's how they're acting, because their attitude was not that this is our land by God gift, and we've come to find strategy of taking what is ours. Rather, they go through with their bug eyes looking at the enormity of everything, including the fruit. The, the grapes were the size of grapefruits. Um, whatever, they're, they're wowing it. And their attitude is, wouldn't it be nice to live here? Yeah. Or the idea is a jolly good idea. But there's an awful lot of reasons why we can't do it. And, and have you been on as a tourist? And you wouldn't it be nice to live here? But of course, there's no, but you're not going to live here. You're just a tourist passing through. Uh, 
And that's how they go in. I, 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 I spend hours trying to get inside the heads of these people because I meet these people all the time. They know the scripture. They know the promises of God. But it doesn't seem to dawn on them those promises have already been given to you. Put down the sole of your foot, tread, and say, that's mine. Instead, we tiptoe through the tulips. And we say, isn't it nice? And on our way we go with no concept that there is. It's not a travel brochure. It's the living, all-powerful intention of God concerning you and I to take this, take this. When they left the land to go back to camp and report to Moses, I, I feel as if they're almost apologizing to Anak, the giants, Apollos for trespassing. They're not treading, they're tiptoeing. Their attitude is, we've got no right to be there. And what I really want you to get, the entire person was involved. You, you really have to get this, and I'm coming back to it in a moment. But this is the way they had no inner sense of their authority from God to have this as their inheritance. So that begins in their inner person. Their mind, their thoughts were controlled by my mortal, my flesh limitations and anything my ancestors have passed on to me. Certainly not a mind under the control of the Word of God. Their emotions increasingly were in a state of sheer terror at the challenge that they faced. But all that came together in their imagination. Please, have you noticed how vivid the description these scouts give of how they felt and what the land was like? Think about it. We, we talked about it the last time we were together. Uh, they said, we were like grasshoppers before them, before the sons of Anak. We were like grasshoppers. Now, that, that's a fascinating phrase, I mean. It, it gives you an instant image of how they felt about themselves and how they felt about their authority and right to being there and to the land. But just a minute, that's the point. It's vivid imagery, pictures. They're having pictures in their head. They're looking at a mirror inside their head. And when they look in the mirror, they see the face of a grasshopper. That's imagination. And that imagination was both fueled by and itself fueled the mind and the emotions. It was that imagination 
that came out of an inner person that had no sense of authority, no sense that God meant what he said. And it translated to their feet that they're not treading the land, they're tiptoeing the land. And then they said, do you remember? What, what, a, what a phrase. They said, this is a land that devours its inhabitants. Devours, like some awful predator, uh, like some great alligator with its mouth wide and its teeth waiting to crush us. Vivid imagery, that's their imagination. They, the land, they didn't see it as their inheritance. Rather, they saw themselves as victims of God, that he's putting us into a land that will chew us up and spit us out. And then their imagination um, took them back to Egypt. They said, ah, oh, that would you remember Egypt? Oh, that. Now, there's safety for you. Oh, yes, Egypt. Boy, we had a good time under Pharaoh, didn't we? Amazing what our imaginations will do with the past. But see how vivid it is. They said, oh, we remember the onions and the leeks and the garlic. Now, that's... They didn't just say we're going to form a band to go back to Egypt. They, they, they began to talk in terms of the taste of Egypt, remembering leek soup and, and the onions. They were remembering the smell of Egypt, the garlic. And they said, oh, let's get away from this place that God has brought us to. Let's go back. That's imagination. Unbelief finds its fuel in an imagination that is limited by human logic and the fantasy of the human mind insisting on going back to the past or into the future and refusing to be in this now is where God and his covenant promises are. But Caleb, you know, we've said it the last weeks, it's, it's what God himself said about Caleb, he said he's of a different spirit. And Moses describes him here in, he was different all right. He didn't tiptoe through Canaan. He put the sole of his foot down and trod. This is the word that is used. He walked through whatever part of Canaan was given to him to oversee, uh, watch, see the strategy. He walked through it as the owner he walked through it as the already conquered, the one who has come to take his possession. You know, I, I often think, I mean, what, what, he, here come, now they didn't all go as a little group. They, they scattered across the land, 12 of them. But for all that, I mean, the Hebrew people, they're distinctive 
as I've said, in their, their size, they were smaller people. Um, they, they've spent 40 years in the desert. They look like Bedouins coming into civilization. Even if there was only one here and one there, they'd be noticed. At least, at least people would say, Who, who's that? They're, they're, they're dressed a little odd. They, they, they look different. And if ever anyone talks to them, you soon find out they're different. And we know that Caleb, the part of the land that fell to him to spy out, was specifically where the sons of Anak seemed to have their headquarters. Can you imagine? I, yeah, I'm using imagination, but I want, to, I want you to see this. That uh, here's a couple of Anak chaps, and and they're behind bushes, and they're watching Caleb. I mean, he's a mystery to the way. Where does he come from? What what on earth is he doing here? And as they would watch, what to them would be a very little fellow, and they're saying, "What's he doing?" Because he was walking with that authority of an owner who is surveying his property. And if you see these two Anak chaps and they're looking through the bushes, what's he doing? What's he doing walking around that property like he's the owner? And then I see Caleb stop and, and he's measuring with his eye and his hands and measuring this way. In his own head, he's putting in his boundary markers. This is, this is where I put this boundary and that boundary. I build my house over there. I can hear it going on in his head. And the sons of Anak are watching him. What is this fellow doing? And then he begins to measure it off with strides, but strides that solidly suggest treading the land. Caleb is seeing his inheritance. He's smelling it. He can taste it. And his feet are going in and he's giving thanks to God for the gift. And one of the sons of Anak said, who does he think he is? And then the other says, I've got it. He's one of them. He's one of them. Whose Yahweh is his God. He's one of them that was delivered from Egypt by plagues. He's one of those fellows who walked on the bed of the Red Sea while his God opened it up. He's one of them. And their hearts failed them for fear. And those gigantic Anak, they felt like grasshoppers before that one that they knew walked in the authority of the God who had crushed the gods of Egypt. You can read that in the early chapters. I think it's chapter 4 or 5 of Joshua where, where the report is made of what 
these Canaanites really thought of those spies when they came in. And it was totally reverse. They didn't see them as grasshoppers. They felt like grasshoppers before these persons who represented the God who kept his word. And when Caleb marched back into the camp of Israel, it was in this kind of faith that he came back. And it was with that quiet assurance that he reported, yes, it's a magnificent land. And yes, the Lord is with us. And they know it. Let us go in and take the land. He had a Holy Spirit-filled imagination. The word imagination in the Bible, and there's quite a bit about it, 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 it means, literally translated, it means the forming place or the workshop inside you where you fashion and form and sculpt. Imagination, it means the place where you see that which has not yet been formed. Or to use the expression that was used concerning Abraham, speaking the things that are not as though they exist. So Caleb could walk in the land as if it was his. And the outradiance of that authority let everybody know who he was and where he came from. In his Holy Spirit-filled imagination, which is high imagination, that which was not yet, because he didn't have a title deed and he had no home there, he just walked there. But there, in imagination filled with the Spirit, he could speak of that which was not yet, as though it was. And it is there that we take the promises of God and tread them out. We see them, we feel them. We say they're mine and we give thanks to God that they are. And you see, unbelief totally involves your imagination. An imagination that is controlled by your mind. Thoughts that are totally independent of your true self, thoughts that are in rebellion to truth and God's promise, thoughts that live by human logic and all the twisted, limited logic that has been passed on from your ancestors and that feeds your imagination. And your imagination is fueled on phrases of what might have been. If only I had. If only I hadn't. Look what we've missed. Look what could be. Garlic and onions and leeks, they smell up our whole imagination. You know, or we zoom off into fantasy worlds that don't exist. And in imagination, we see the hideous concoctions of a corrupt flesh. Where we see, what if this happens? What if that happens? Oh, if, if that, that could be, that might be, perhaps that would be. It's all imagination and it leaves you in a trembling heap of anxiety, unbelief. 
That's what, did you see, that's what happened to, first of all, the ten scouts, and that translated because anxiety and polluted imagination spreads like a prairie fire. And one man stood in a Holy Spirit-filled imagination and spoke not merely of what he'd seen, but what he saw through what he'd seen, the promises of God that were filled with power so they would be fulfilled. Oh, yeah. And you see, this all takes us to Jesus. What I I say continually, if, if you hear me, in Jesus Christ, God has become human. It is imperative that we understand that. Jesus Christ is God the Son who has entered into, united with, become one with us. So he wasn't pretending to be human. He didn't assume the guise of human and then upon his resurrection disappear off back to where he came. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, God took to himself human and he will never give that human up. He has become one with us a member of our race, our brother. He became human. He joined us. And as human, he trod out. The soles of his feet trod out a human life, a human life facing temptation and trouble and pressures. But he trod out. He put down his foot with the authority that he was what mankind was always intended to be, God and man united together. He fulfilled the Garden of Eden. He fulfilled what Canaan was all about. God and man united as one. And not merely as a one-time impossible example, but by many words that he said as the prototype. Jesus, God, man, Emmanuel, God with us in the ultimate sense. He's the prototype of a new race of people which is called in Scripture the new creation, which is being born from above, born again, participants in his resurrection. That's the gospel. That God became flesh, became one of us, that we might actually participate in that divine nature now revealed in our humanity. Jesus made new tracks. He tramped out new tracks 
in human life within this world that had never been before right into our death and he as one of us inside our death shattered death rose from the dead and declared I am the first and the last in me first and last meet together I am the living one which better translated may be I am livingness I am the source and fountain of life but not just life because he says I am the was dead I'm not only alive, but I was dead. I entered into death, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That is, with a life that cannot die. That enters into every part of... That, that's, that's who he is. He has tramped out with the soles of his feet. He has brought about this union this that Canaan always pointed to Garden of Eden always hoped for the God and man should live together and with that that's the inheritance but with that comes a multitude of promises that affect my body my mind the very cells and bones and muscles of my body my imaginations my emotion, my total person affects me in terms of my strength and ability and wisdom to face the opportunities and the challenges of life. To discover what it is to walk inside the footprints of Jesus in the same spirit wherewith he walked. So that for me, for you to live is Christ. And you realize that just this past Sunday, how many persons heard that in the reading of Scripture? How many persons sometime today read that in the Scripture? I don't know what they thought when they read it. Probably they thought they were reading a tourist travel brochure of a land that was beyond their comprehension. But because it was their daily reading, they read it and said, how nice. Maybe some even thought, wouldn't it be nice to live there? Others maybe thought, wouldn't it have been great to live 2,000 years ago when this seemed to... I don't know what they thought. But I know millions have read that scriptures, I mean read New Testament, Old Testament, promise upon promise upon promise, and they have done nothing about it except tiptoe through the tulips to get back to the safety of the desert and smell for garlic, onions, and leeks and said, let's get out of here. Or let's watch it from a great distance. I, I'm, I'm looking for Caleb who will see the promises of God 
and put foot down and say, thank you, Lord, this through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit, this is mine. And I walk as if it is mine because it is mine. And I mark my boundaries and I put my foot down here. It's mine. In Caleb's case, it took 45 years of wandering through a trackless desert because three million other people voted not to go into the land. But with every step he took, he was still back there. He was living in Canaan in his head, in his imagination. And when they came into Canaan, 40 years later, and they heard the report of what those sons of Anak had thought, truly thought, 40 years ago, and realized they could have gone in and just taken the land like ripe apples of a tree, but they didn't. And all those people who were afraid were now dead, and there's only Caleb and Joshua left. And Caleb said, right here we read it, Moses swore to me 45 years ago, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance to you. So, Joshua, I've come to take it. I'm 85 years old today. This will be a great birthday present. And he did. Please, let me find a Caleb who instead of just reading words, will put your foot down and take that which by the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the everlasting covenant, is yours. Amen. And the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, open your eyes infuse you with his strength and bring you to the fullness of your inheritance. That is the way it is. I'll see you next week.